Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I, whoa, that was a different that tone. Sound different? Yeah. <laughs> Should I try again? I don't know. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 223 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're doing a legal tech debrief with Mark Britton, the founder and former CEO of Avo. Today's podcast is brought to you by Arag, Text Expander, and Ruby Receptionist. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So on podcast episodes this month, we're going to try and highlight in our intros some semi-coordinated discussions about lawyerists' views on tech competence and data security and other kind of technology training issues that we think lawyers could do a better job of adopting into their practices and how lawyerist thinks lawyers should approach that. And so today wanted to riff a little bit on tech competence and the importance of lawyers thinking about technology and learning in the lawyerist way. I'm trying to remember what year it was that I kind of made tech competence my soapbox and decided that like we are going to try to move the needle in this industry. But in any case, we're still talking about it. And that was years ago. Yeah. And it's still a primary topic of some major subset of CLEs on the ethics implications of states saying you now need to be technologically competent to be legally competent. These are still popular (laughs) ethics CLE credits. I mean, the, the ABA, I think, said everything that needed to be said about this in 2008 when it promulgated the red herring, which is comment eight to rule 1.1, which says that, you know, as part of your obligation to be professionally competent, you have to stay on top of the risks and benefits of using technology and things like that. And what the ABA said in promulgating that rule was, of course, you have to be technologically competent. The reason that we put it in a comment was because it was already part of the rule, you idiots. You just (laughs) needed a reminder. And I have lots of thoughts, obviously, but I hope that everyone listening to this podcast is in the choir and doesn't need this. But like, if you're still rejecting or resisting the idea that you need to be able to function competently with technology, fucking wake up. (laughs) So I think it was probably five years ago. I lose track of the time um, (laughs) that, that you first published our tech competence checklist which I think still lives as an available download for lawyerist insiders. It does, and it's fairly up to date. Yeah, and and I think that's at least a good starting point to understand broadly what kinds of things we are talking about. Generally, I think it falls into a few different categories, which is around understanding the tools you use to practice law so that you can competently use them and use them in a fair and efficient way, especially if you're billing by the hour. I think there's a category of them around specifically kind of around security and confidentiality that you need to know whether and how you are protecting different things by using technology. And then the third would be, depending on your practice area, having some understanding of the technology implications of the things in your clients' lives so that if you are doing things like divorce discovery or criminal discovery or advising on estate planning, that you understand where clients' things live, who has access to them, who's saying what, where, how things work. Broadly, I think those are the three important categories of technology competence. People, People sometimes get the idea, and this hurts me, this hurts my soul when people say this to me, 
when they come up to me and they say, you know, I'm not where you guys want me to be. And when I ask where they think that we want them to be, they have this idea that we're promoting the idea that lawyers need to be some sort of lawyer, coder, savant thing. And that's just not true. The idea that I think we're pushing is that you need to have a basic understanding of how technology works. You don't need to be able to code anything. But, you know, think about how you would go about introducing a letter into evidence if the mailbox rule were at issue. Well, you should be able to be competent to do something similar when it comes to email or a tweet. And that same understanding of how email works will help inform your decisions about whether or not you're adequately protecting your client's communications. And none of this requires you to understand how data goes in and out of a server or where, but you need to have a basic understanding of how things work. And that goes across the board. It also goes to things like efficiency. If you don't understand the various different ways that you might go about organizing information in your practice and the different ways that there are to create a brief with or without the assistance of technology, it's hard to answer the question of are you making good use of your client's money and the time that they're paying you to work? And that's kind of what we're going at is you need to be competent to use technology, not to create software and shit like that. So, so as often happens in our, <laughs> in our podcast intros, we frequently play a little bit of good cop, bad cop. And I think it rotates yeah. who's good cop and who's bad cop. But since you've been the one swearing today, I will play the role of good cop. <laughs> there you go. Sounds fair. So I don't think anyone's an idiot. I think we've got lots of resources to help you move forward on this topic, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. And we would love to help you become more technologically. Agreed. Like just get started. If you're still resisting, get over that and get started and we will help you do it. So here now's my conversation with Mark Britton, the founder of Avo. And I think it's relevant because Avo's entry into the legal market was something that provoked similar reactions and resistances. Here we go. I'm Mark Britton. I am the former CEO and I guess always founder of Avo.com and today a civilian outside of the legal world who is sometimes investing, sometimes sitting on boards, but mostly thinking about what I want to do next. <laughs> do, you, do you know? What you, I suppose you're still thinking about it. You don't know what you want to do next, huh? I am currently working with a venture capital company, actually two venture capital companies, one more formally. I'm working with Madrona Ventures, which is a venture capital fairly early stage, although they've moved into much later stage. They cover heavily on the West Coast. They do a great job in the Northwest where I live in Seattle. But think of them as early to mid-stage venture. And then there are a couple of other venture capital companies. There's one deal I'm in the middle of right now, a fairly large deal that I can't currently talk about, but with a growth stage venture capital company. And so doing a mix of just helping venture companies invest, investing on my own, et cetera. But you know, that, I like staying involved with companies in that way. Yeah. Do you think you'll start another company? I don't know. Never say never. It seems like a huge thing. I mean, you've been involved in the founding of two different companies, I think, right? Like it, it right. must feel like right. a massive undertaking to start over. Well, you have to think about them in 10 to 15 year chunks. And again, I'm 52. And so <laughs> I, I know for sure that I do not want to be working 
well into my late 60s. Yeah. I shouldn't say that I know that for sure, but that is my, <laughs> my strong visceral reaction at this point. I mean, the, the reality is, and I think anyone that's listening that is in the middle of trying to make something successful right now, it just takes all of you. Like, yeah. if you are really, and I don't care if you're talking about being a dentist or a nonprofit or just anything that matters. It, it really takes every part of your day. And especially with that avo, I ground that out for 12 years. And I finally got to a point where, you know, it was a collection of things. A little bit was my own personal issues and just, you know, the, the dad I wanted to be, the husband I wanted to be. A little bit of it was that we had a great purchaser. A little bit of it was the industry. But all of those things kind of came together. And I said, yeah, now's the time to take a bit of a pause. And I, I don't know. I, I, I could, but I think it is a fairly low likelihood. Gotcha. That doesn't sound surprising, but I also have a healthy dose of skepticism, <laughs> knowing you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you and I have very similar personalities in that uh, I think we both love business and mm -hmm. we love being involved and helping people. But at the same time, you know, I personally, and I think from chatting with you, you realize that there are some very big challenges within running a business and especially running a business within legal. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a higher level of energy to consistently be going, driving that forward, being innovative and bringing the industry in to help them be excited about innovating. That's hard in legal. That seems like a good segue to sort of turn back the clock. And we've talked about what you're doing now and what you might do next. I'd like to go back to how did you come to start Avo? Like what were you doing before and what led to the founding of what ended up becoming kind of an industry defining company for a, a long time? Uh, well, thank you for that characterization because we love what we accomplished at Avo. And yes, when you go all the way back to the beginning, it's kind of unbelievable the arc of Avo's growth. But yeah, so, you know, I'll give you the very short version on my career that I was a lawyer, even was a government lawyer there for a period of time, went to a big firm, became a partner there, and then ended up getting hijacked, not surprisingly, by one of our largest clients, which was Microsoft. Mm. So I was brought in to be Expedia, the travel company's first general counsel. And I did that for a number of years. Then I moved over to the business side and really uh, ran everything that wasn't a business unit. And that included things like strategy. I had the strategy group under me. And one of the things that I loved about running the strategy group was that we were at that time, this was just the beginning of the birth of the social web, right? Mm -hmm. Web where, where rather than having these very linear e-commerce sites where you would attract a customer, take them down to the bottom of the funnel and they would buy something like a trip or like a book or like a CD, you were starting to have people come together communally and that would drive an advertising. And so I really, before I left Expedia, for example, one company we looked at very closely that I, I admittedly right up front didn't understand as well as I should have was TripAdvisor. Mm. I initially recommended that we not acquire TripAdvisor. We ultimately were in the process of that when I left. But, you know, I, I was able to get a really great glimpse of this groundswell around the social web. And this is going back to, what was that, 2004? 
it's becoming ancient history. <laughs> but anyway, so I actually took a couple of years off. I really felt burned out. We were, Expedia had been purchased by Interactive Corp, which a lot of people know for the dating sites now, like Match.com and oh, Tinder, really? et cetera. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, have, they pivoted from television, USA Networks, et cetera, into really aggressively went into the web and have done an amazing job, or at least the, the public markets think they've done an amazing job. But no, they're, they're a super bright group of people. And so I, you know, acquisitions, they're just hard. If anybody's ever gone through one of these on the operating side, you know, you, you at Expedia, and I would say at Avo as well, you know, we, we, you have complete autonomy, and then you start working with somebody, and a lot of that autonomy goes away, mm-hmm. which it's just a gear shift. I mean, Sam, if tomorrow you were to sell lawyers, which you are not planning to do, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it would just, you call every single shot, or at least your, your group calls every single shot every day. And having someone call that shot from New York or L.A. or someplace else, it's hard. just a gear shift. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, to keep it long story short, with that acquisition, I ended up taking two years off. And or it was just about two years. And I taught for a period of that. But that's, you know, the birth of Avo is so simple in that I started thinking about what I would do next as I was coming out of teaching. And I thought, okay, I love the law, love lawyers. And Expedia, you know, I I understood that e-commerce element of it. Hey, a lot of people are attempting to plan trips or using online tools to research those trips, but there are no tools to research your legal trip, right? Which, Mm -hmm. Which can have a profound, so much more profound impact on your life than just going to Tahiti. Right. And uh, <laughs> handling your divorce poorly can impact your whole life in a way that a, a missed flight cannot, or a, a bad hotel room at <laughs> Right. But anyway, I just started thinking about that. And then, you know, I've told this story a number of times, but having friends contact me, and I was living, I was teaching in Italy, and having people contact me about legal issues, I'm thinking, there is no way that I'm the best resource for these people. Why aren't there online tools? Right. So I married Expedia with the legal profession and then started to sprinkle on that crowdsourcing, that social web concept. And those three things coming together, that's the birth of Otto. And initially, though, it, the vision was larger than legal, right? Because there was doctors and dentists were at least planned. And I think you had doctors for a while. And Yeah, so how the original team for ABO was a collection of roughly eight engineers, we could say 11, but I mean that really core group that we we hired in the spring of 2005, Mm -hmm. they were all Expedia cronies who came and they left Expedia to follow the dream. And the dream that I was able to get them in the door with was this idea that we would be Yelp for the white collar profession. So Yelp was just getting going at that time. And so it it was so novel, this idea that for small businesses, you could have a community of people that would come together and talk about those businesses, share their knowledge, share the wisdom of the masses, and through the broader that that community was, 
you would get a lot of efficiency in the opinion. So you might have a lot of people talking, but then the beauty of the platform, the beauty of the company, of the medium that everyone was talking through or sharing their ideas through was that there would be some curating element that would help bring the conversation together so that if you were reviewing uh, or trying to understand about a restaurant or a laundromat or whatever it might be, you could fairly quickly understand whether that had a strong reputation in the community. I mean, the, the way Avo hit everyone's radar, though, was by all of a sudden Avo started publishing state after state lists of all of the lawyers and scraping all of the lawyers, databases from bar associations, whatever, and then offering to let people claim their profiles. And I feel like that was like shocking, it felt like to people. I don't think anybody realized that that was even a thing that anyone was capable of doing at the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of what we did at Avo seemed shocking to the legal profession, but was a yawner to the rest, to the more technological world. I yeah. mean, the, the whole world is indexed, right? And you just have <laughs> to know where to find it. And is it. And that, by the way, is just accelerated. I mean, the the orders of magnitude of change and the speed of that. I mean, I'll just say for any lawyer listening, if you are uncomfortable with any part of your life being published on the web, you might as well just check out now, right? Because <laughs> like your whole life is being indexed at the speed of light. Like the, the mapping that advertising companies have around your behavior today is just horrifying, right? Like, but I actually love it because I do believe that people behave better when they believe that there's a consequence, when they believe that they're being watched. And so that probably to certain people makes me a total communist or whatever (laughs) it might be. But I, you know, I just, Bring on the panopticary. Right, right. (laughs) But just free flow of information. And so kind of with that ethos, we said, okay, there is way too much friction. There is way too much behind the doors stuff going on in legal. And as a consequence, the unfortunate circle that had developed in legal up until I feel that Avo really hit the scene is that there was no transparency, none whatsoever. Whereas most other industries were dealing with quite a bit of transparency already or, or, or their industry groups had forced a lot of transparency. And so, okay, so you have no transparency. As a consequence, the consumers have no idea what's going on in legal. So they, you know, they, they but I think have lawyers to... have to acknowledge that they also don't know what's going on in anyone else's law offices, right? Like when somebody asks yeah. me for a referral, I can only make a confident referral to one or two people that I can think of because I have tried a case with them or I've right. worked with it. Like it's not transparent internally either. Yeah, that's a great example. And that's part of like, I remember at Expedia, we needed to hire a lawyer down in Louisiana due to some cruise issues we mm-hmm. had with a cruise company getting sued and somebody slip and fall stuff on cruises. <laughs> trying to find that lawyer down there was like trying to find, you know, the the Rosetta Stone. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, it, I had to go through connections in D.C., which got me down to Atlanta, which got, you know, I just slowly worked my way south and it took like <laughs> weeks. And I remember thinking like, I'm a general counsel for a large public company. Like, it's got to be easier than that. Yep. But, you know, so you think about the average consumer and the other thing. So, OK, so lawyers, they all they go to law school and they know all these lawyers. And so they're like, it's easy. You just call your friend. But 
Imagine the person that did not go to law school or didn't even grow up in a more white-collar community. They are just the degrees of separation from lawyers in the legal community. It's just vast. It's just a chasm for them. Even today, sadly, even today. But just go back. We're talking about 15 years ago. So, you know, the idea was, okay, there's no transparency. That is leading to uh, uh, consumers being totally lost. And when they're lost, they make inefficient decisions. And one of the greatest inefficient decisions that we saw was that most people were going without a lawyer, right? Which, which someone should never do. I and mean, in the end, I am a lawyer. I love the legal profession. Lawyers solve problems. They do amazing things. But the overall industry perception then and now is that lawyers don't do anything. All they do is... You were going to swear there. (laughs) I was. I was. And, And all they do is charge a lot of money. That is an overarching perception of the legal profession. I mean, just how many other professions have have whole books written on jokes about them? Mm-hmm. And so, and yet lawyers sit back and say, there's not a problem. Right. So our bet was that we needed to go after the legal profession first because it was one of the areas where there was so little transparency. Medical has similar issues, but not quite as bad. Accounting has similar issues, but a lot of these white collar professions that operate more as a guild than an industry mm-hmm. have the the a lot of the practitioners who are trying to guard information rather than letting it out there. So we said, let's go in, and the only way we're going to break down this circle, this kind of vicious cycle of no transparency to bad decisions to lawyers not generating or not helping as many people and not generating as much business as they can is getting in there and really mixing it up. And so we rolled up our sleeves and we knew that it was going to ruffle some feathers, but I'm not sure I realized that lawyers ultimately would push back as hard as they did because mm-hmm. it just wasn't that novel when you looked at what we were doing compared to other industries. I hate to stop for long, but we have to pay the bills. So we need to take a break to hear from our sponsors and when we come back, I want to kind of look back at what you were trying to accomplish and assess how well you think you did. We'll be back. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your chosen area of law without spending time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. ARAG is a leader in legal insurance, and it works a lot like medical insurance. When you become a provider on the ARAG network, you consult with and represent clients for various legal issues, from writing a will to dealing with bankruptcy or divorce. ARAG does the rest, seriously. They'll connect you with new clients, they'll pay you directly, they'll even collect client feedback and share it with you so you can keep growing your business. Visit araglegal.com slash lawyerist, that's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist, to join the network for no fee and start growing your practice. And it is all about the growth. 
In fact, more than 90% of our AUG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something goes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com slash lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, helping legal professionals like you deliver legendary service and grow your practice with live receptionist and chat services. At a fraction of the cost of a full-time hire, Ruby's live U.S.-based team greets your clients personally when they call or visit your website. Ruby can route calls to you or connect chats to call based on your customized directions. Your live receptionist can collect new client intake, answer frequently asked questions, and make follow-up calls. Ruby streamlines billing with call tracking and Clio Rocket Matter and Clio Grow integrations. Ruby can send messages to you via the mobile app, email, or text, and much more, helping you grow your firm. Thousands of solo and small firm attorneys across the country rely on Ruby to turn callers and website visitors into clients. And now you can try Ruby for free. Call 844-715-7829 today or visit callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast to get started with your 14-day free trial. That's 844-715-7829 or callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast. Okay, we're back. So Mark, before the break, we were talking about the original vision and the way you went about solving the problem of helping consumers find lawyers. I've poked fun at Avo over the years because I think there's some inherent funniness to trying to rate lawyers. And I think the way lawyers have reacted to it has been also hilarious. But fundamentally, I think I've been consistent in saying, as you have, that, look, it's almost impossible to refer somebody with, to another lawyer with confidence. It's re- even harder if you're a consumer to find a lawyer. And at least Avo's trying. And yeah, you know, client ratings may not be perfect, but it's better than nothing. I'm wondering how you think about that. Like, did Avo succeed at what it was trying to do? Um, was it better than nothing? Like, on a scale of zero to 10, how close do you think you came to achieving that original vision? <sighs> The last question was really interesting. Uh, let me come back to that on the sure. scale. But I, I will say that I don't. So, so one thing about a startup is that your mission consistently evolves. I'm very proud that we stayed. There was a core mission that we stayed true to, and that was serving the consumer and ultimately serving the legal profession through serving the consumer. Mm -hmm. But how we did that evolved over time. So yes, it started as more of a directory and then uh, with the AVA rating. And then we brought in the communal element to the Q&A and the legal guides. Where I really feel like we did not succeed at the level we could and should have was with our fixed price, fixed fee legal services, which was called auto legal services. Yeah, which was fairly late in the game, really. Uh, yes, but that's where when you say, did you succeed, it was the next chapter that was so right. necessary for both consumers and lawyers. And it kind of got interrupted by the acquisition, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it first was interrupted by regulators and, and the bar. Right. And yeah. I shouldn't even say the bar associations themselves. It's more of the... One thing that's really tough about dealing with bars is that I call it a lowest common denominator approach where, you know, the, the angriest lawyer can go into a bar and tell the bar ED and the bar leadership totally. that they're going to sue them and just go crazy and that will slow things down. And that that is a great way. And then that person or the friend of that person sends in a letter for uh, a, you know, a non-binding advisory opinion. And the bar has no upside by going head to head with that lawyer, mm-hmm. right? Like, because he or she is so angry or so frightened. And so they just 
issue this non-binding advisory opinion, which it just puts everything on pause. And that's a lot of what we dealt with with other legal services. And I watch a lot of other innovative products. It's just a way to say, okay, we're going to pump this down the road while the consumer just sits there and says, like, I need help. But anyway, don't, don't get me on that. Well, no, box. you're so, right, though. Our profession is really good at pointing out problems. It, it hasn't been historically great at providing solutions to anything other than the legal totally. issues that clients bring to their lawyers. So. Right. And it makes sense because that's what lawyers are. I mean, there's a speech I give that talks about lawyers are issue spotters, mm-hmm. right? And and they were if they were great opportunity spotters, they probably wouldn't have become lawyers. <laughs> now, it's not entirely fair because I know a whole subset of lawyers. They tend to be more in the consumer-related areas like personal injury, a lot of criminal stuff, especially DUI and traffic tickets, a lot of family stuff, et cetera. Where they're out there interacting, they need to be entrepreneurial and bringing in a consumer client. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of entrepreneurial lawyers that I just love spending time with, but even they will see how stable they are because a lot of times the bar, and especially their competitors who are less entrepreneurial, will freeze them by through these advisory opinions. But anyway, so going back to Avo, I will say that you know that that will be one of my great regrets that we didn't succeed in that both for consumers and lawyers. But if we go, you know. Like the things that we accomplished well or that we that we succeeded in were moving the legal profession forward, a full function change into understanding how they can interact better with that end user being the legal consumer, right? Like what are the ways that we can actually have a presence on the web that is something better than a static website where I can interact with people through Q&A, through the legal guides, through instant messaging, et cetera, and be available, be a real person. I think we really move the profession forward in that way. Mm-hmm. I would say where we we possibly, so I, you know, I talked about legal services, making the purchasing of those legal services simple just didn't get there. And then you, you touched on the rating. I think the ratings weren't revisiting because it's, you know, it's a, it's a constant question of like, can you rate the qualitative elements of life? Right. And what's funny is it was so far-fetched 12 or 15 years ago because honestly, for our team, it was so forward-looking that everything today, everything that I see out there in Everything that is getting funded from a venture perspective is the mathematical algorithms that are able to quantify the qualitative. So I just gave a speech on this the other day, but you know, we love to talk about web movements, or we love to talk about technological movements. And probably the greatest technological revolution that we've ever experienced since the advent of the computer and then the internet is artificial intelligence and machine learning. That is going, so much money is being pumped into that right now, and yet most lawyers don't even understand it or appreciate that it is going on. The auto rating was simply early artificial intelligence, algorithmic-driven decision-making, and with a bit and, and very primitive machine learning layered on top of it. Yeah. And it's this idea of, you know, if I Sam were to give you a resume for a lawyer or somebody that wanted to work at the lawyerist, it would take you literally seconds to tell me whether you were interested in interviewing that person. Mm-hmm. 
and and you've never met them. There is nothing qualitative about it other than you are doing math in your head. Regard, <laughs> you're scoring that right. resume as you look down it. And all we did was using hundreds and ultimately thousands of lawyers in their judgment built an algorithm that scored those resumes in the same way that a human does. It's just artificial intelligence. And then as we saw people interact with those resumes, we modified it, sometimes with people, sometimes with machines. Was it always perfect? No. But that question, that assertion that anything, like you give me, like Google, Google has become an institution. Google is is more Orwellian <laughs> anyone you know that than Orwell could have ever predicted. Yeah, it is. It is more a part of our lives. It's a verb. It's a utility. It is. I use it fifty times a day, and it is central to who we are. And you can put possibly Facebook in this category and Apple in this category as well. But all of these systems are massively imperfect. I mean, just just ask Google who the best lawyer is. I mean, or, I, uh, I, I hope I think what I hear you saying is that it may not have been perfect, but it was built so that it could continually improve itself and get better and better and better and more and more perfect. And so that over time, the approach that Avo was taking would have gotten us to the point where it was doing a really good job, let's say an equally good job at finding you the lawyer that could help you as Google does finding you the answer to your search query. I, I would argue much better mm. than the, you know, imperfect Avo was much better than imperfect Google. <laughs> okay. And it was so much better than the yellow pages. When we came into this industry, everybody forgets, when we came into this industry, the yellow pages was making $1.2 billion a year in lawyer advertising. Hmm. The yellow pages were telling people where to go. It was who could buy the largest ad on the back or on the spine. And we said, we, we must be able to do better than that. So did we succeed? You know, and, and I, I don't know, I, I think it's appropriate to always strive for perfection. Criticizing anything, including humans, for being imperfect is a little much. So I think it's fair to say that Avo coming onto the scene was a pretty transformative, if not disruptive, thing in the legal industry. I'm reluctant to call just about anything disruptive, so I'm going to go with transformative. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, do you think now that it is owned by internet brands, which is mostly known for holding internet brands, do you think Avo will continue to play that role and be as influential? Or do you think it's going to be sort of where it was minus the legal services and it's up to a new startup to come in and take things to the next stage? You know, I can't really speak. I, I'm not there anymore. And I haven't been there sure. for a year-ish. And so... I don't sit in their strategy meetings. I know that we handed them an innovative company. However, I mean, let just you know be totally transparent. When you sell a company, and we sold, I mean, Internet Brands is an arm of KKR, the, the large private equity firm. And when you're selling to private equity, I mean, they are they are going to run a business in a very financial way, right? They're, while I think they understand that innovation is important, it is 
primarily important that you hit their numbers and fit within the financial model. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a lot of structure, and hitting your goals is absolutely critical. And so, gambling on the future seems like a harder proposition in that scenario. It's just harder, right? Exactly. And so, we handed them a very profitable, well-run business that gave them the option to run it financially, but also operate it in an innovative way. Now, I just the other day stumbled into doing, I really don't remember, it wasn't a legal search, but somehow stumbled into something. Oh, no, it was. It was related to a traffic ticket of mine. <laughs> uh, it was actually a traffic ticket of my wife. Nice. But um, I ran into lawyers.com and has added a pretty robust Q&A, and I didn't have time to go and look whether it was simply replicated from Avo or that it was the Q&A had more content and looked farther along than anything I'd ever seen within lawyers.com. So yeah, I think within the universe of sites, I think that they're still building out features. If it's at the velocity or at the, at the kind of disrupt in the disruptive nature that I would hope for, I don't know, but I do know that, that running that business to drive um, the financial soundness of it felt like their priority uh, a year ago. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> what? Well, I, it, you know, so that helps. It, it isn't in, I don't, I'm not saying it's inaccurate, but it's very diplomatic. Okay. So let's say I'm, because I, I don't think Avo solved the problem of lawyer ratings like forever and ever and amen. I still think that that problem of how do I find a lawyer remains a large I, one. And I'm wondering, like, how would you advise the next company who wants to try and solve that? Yeah, I, I think it's going to need to be somebody who's young and naive because yeah. <laughs> um, you, you need you need to hop in and just not realize how slowly the bars are going to work, et cetera. But I, I do believe that... So as you look across other industries, the mathematical models, the, the processes that are becoming automated become more sophisticated, more kind of available, tangible. I mean, you know, the, the understanding how to modularly build decision-making sets that can stack upon each other to drive what appear to be really complex decision-making mm -hmm. Is that that is just you just can't imagine how fast that area is moving. I think ultimately there are two pieces. I think that the big chunks where I see a lot of disruption, let's say in a vacuum without any regulatory pushback, I think that taking the concept of the AVA rating and having a kind of a more fulsome, just taking in you know, even more information than the AVA rating took as far as getting into the different court filings and decisions, et cetera, and being able to pull that very broad. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, but there's, Yes, yeah, so let's just leave it at performance. But there, there, there also, I mean, all of the operating is ultimately performance, is my yeah. point. And there, all, there is, with the access to information and the models, you can take that much further. And I don't want to, I, I still can't talk about what goes into the operating, but <laughs> it was complex. Yeah. It was complex, but I think you can take that, that level of complexity even further with access and math. The so. second part, 
is, you know, the, the so many of the actions of lawyers are very rote, are very simple, that can be automated. And it horrifies, horrifies the lawyers <laughs> that, that any aspect of what they do, they, they, they feel that lawyers are going to go away if you automate any part of what they do. But I feel that there is a whole intake chunk and then there is a whole practice of law chunk that lawyers are currently doing at least too much manually, right? Too manually. Right. And a lot of those pieces could be automated so that the lawyers can move farther up into the bespoke work and not just being process monkeys. And it just scares them every time you talk about it. But there's a real, there's a huge revolution waiting to happen there. And it will absolutely benefit the customer. It'll benefit lawyers. It will benefit the legal profession. I mean, it, it sounds like you're kind of talking about Avo Legal Services, which by and large took intake off the lawyer's plate and just said, here's a legal problem, solve it and get paid. Yeah, I, I think from all, yes. So, so Avo Legal Services was our best shot at that. But if you think about a lot of what the practice management companies are doing as far as helping someone who is interested, get them into their system, getting them processed, getting them set up as a client. There's a lot of stuff that is done manually today that just is so unbelievably hard and stupid. Um, <laughs> no question. Or, or, or stupid because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. And then and then once the lawyer starts serving that client, whether it is through the legal research or putting together the initial forms or making the, the initial requests from the, the government agencies or the other side or whatever. I mean, all of that should be automated. I mean, there really, I mean, I, there, there's a world that I envision where someone wakes up in the morning and there is the dashboard for priority on who they should call personally. There is the dashboard for everyone that was brought in, automated, how they were set up. Mm -hmm. Do they have the credit card or not? Has the conflict check? You know, so imagine you have this dashboard that they have signed up. We have the credit card. We've done the conflict check. We've done the research on these initial five issues. And as a consequence, that triggered that we set out letters to the insurance carriers, to the police, to uh, whatever. And all of that's just sitting there in a file so that you can quickly look at it and make sure that there are no bugs. Great. Now I call the ones that look to be the bigger fish. Mark, I have a meta question to you that about the legal tech world that maybe goes more towards your ex current experience as an investor. I've gone to Stanford Codex, their future law conference for several years. I, I missed this year, but one of the constant things I hear there is that in Silicon Valley, at least, it's hard to find investors who are willing to invest in legal. It's hard to find AI engineers who are, or data scientists who are willing to work for a legal tech company. And, and I, it sounds like there's a couple of components to that, the perception at least. One is that legal is too small of a market. And I, I think that we see this in the way Clio is trying to position itself as an international company 
Uh, they're trying to handle more of the thing. It feels like they're trying to tell a story about themselves as a company that could grow beyond legal. But then the other side of it is just that I think when you're trying to solve problems with AI, there's this perception that legal is a pretty boring set of problems to solve with AI. And so if somebody could go work for Google, why wouldn't they do that? And that's just kind of my perception of the perceptions that I think I'm hearing at Stanford Codex. And I'm wondering from where you sit, is there enough money in legal that it's going to get the kind of attention it needs to solve these problems, which like if Avo were to continue going down the the route of more and more data and having machine learning plugged into it, it would have needed to be able to attract some pretty impressive talent to do that. Yes. I mean, okay, first of all, it's a huge market, yeah. especially if... I mean, I'm talking to somebody who sold a very valuable company from the yeah. legal tech space. So, And that was just on the advertising side, yeah. right? I mean, legal tech ultimately is taking a percentage of the flow of dollars that go through the legal industry. And even though the pricing may not be set up as a percentage, listen, anybody that runs a P&L for a law firm is willing to spend X percent on overhead, right? So the question is, you, whether you're, you're LexisNexis or Thompson or Clio or whatever it might be, you are trying to price your products in a way that you capture a percentage of the percentage. And this is why I, I just, uh, lawyers and bars, just the, the stupidity around, hey, you can't share in a percentage of <laughs> the, the right. case that's coming in. It's like, do you even understand how products are priced? Like, everyone shares in a percentage of the revenue. It's a highly semantic regulation, yes. Yeah, totally, totally. So when you look at the, you know, it was somewhere between hundreds of billions of even maybe argue a trillion dollars that flow through the legal industry. There is just, I mean, legal is a part of everything in the United States. And the, the, the idea that someone cannot build killer applications to capture a part of that is just short-sighted. Gotcha. Now let, now let me walk that back. <laughs> okay. It, it may be short-sighted. The problem is it is so much slower moving than if you were to go into something like medical or... Right. That was part two of my question. Like, it feels so hard to move anything in the legal industry. That's right. And and it's, it's for really two principal reasons. So first and foremost, the overarching issue is this, what I alluded to earlier before the break, you know, that the bars just, there is no upside in the bars in being out in front. The way that we have the bar structure set up it, it, they can be slowed by any group of any individual, but usually small group of cranky lawyers can can mm -hmm. just slow it down, bring things to a grinding halt. Mm -hmm. The second is, even if someone is highly passionate about the legal profession, highly technical, you know, let's imagine you have the most technical mach machine learning specialist who loves the law. If they're not a lawyer and set the thing up as a law firm, then they, it is very hard for them to get paid for their work. And so this, you know, the, the way that the broader legal profession has set itself up is that there is one mode of operating business, and that is a law firm by lawyers. And if it doesn't fit within that box, then it's evil. 
and it's going to hurt, well, they say consumers, but what they mean <laughs> is lawyers, and therefore it should not be. And I just I can't tell you how much I disagree with that because it is keeping the brightest minds out of the profession that would innovate in a way and at a rate that, yes, lawyers might lose some level of control, but their industry would be so much healthier. I'm hearing some frustration in your voice, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's real, but it's real. I mean, yeah. I mean, you've heard me speak. I don't think anyone yes. that's heard me speak would be shocked by this. I mean, I, I think the I, I am massively frustrated with the industry because, A, I love it. And I believe in what it does, and yet I feel it is fundamentally unhealthy, and no one, or I shouldn't say no one, there are some people that care very deeply, but as, as a as a 50-state coalition of people trying to move forward, no one seems to be willing to take the bold steps forward in the name of the consumer. And and so I, ultimately, where we're going to end up, and I and really see where the frustration sets in the deepest, is that the consumers are already moving away from the legal profession. And they'll continue to do that to the point where I think it's only when the legal profession starts tipping over will will people be ready to move. When I and when I say tipping over, like working around the legal profession, operating outside of the legal profession for both like dispute resolution, contract preparation, you know, the do it yourself or at least do it without a lawyer movement will just continue to grow. I'm glad you you put that there and, and I know we're gonna have to wrap up here and I think that's a pretty good place to leave it, which is like if lawyers don't solve the problems with the legal profession, then the rest of the world will move on and stop worrying about lawyers. And and the, the perception that, I mean, there are absolutely problems that will always need to get solved through the legal industry, but that doesn't mean they will need to get solved with lawyers. And that might be a really, really small percentage of the problems that remain. And I don't think our profession has really stopped to stare that possibility in the face just yet. I think that's well put. Thank you so much for being with us, Mark. I guess congrats on selling Avo and uh, spending more time with your family and trying to figure out what to do next. And thanks to the lawyerists. I mean, you and I have chatted about it before, but we've been together at the earliest stages <laughs> of our companies. And just to see what, what the lawyerist has been able to do in the community that it's brought together, it's pretty impressive. Thanks, Mark. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 